This is Asked and Answered. Questions. With Tom Opferman and Steelers Digest editor Bob Labriola. With training camp just a little over two weeks away, we thought it would be really nice of us here on this podcast, before we get into the questions of this week, to give you maybe a nice training camp moment or two in this episode and the next episode to kind of lead you into 2023 training camp. And Labs, I just want to be clear. These are moments that have to do with the Steelers and players, right? Like it can't be my first grilled cheese cheeseburger at Sharky's that brought a tear to my eye. <laughs> no, right. There is okay. not that it's not that. It's not your first uh uh stuffed banana pepper pizza either. Because <laughs> those are um, one two on my list of key moments of, of training camp. But I'm I'll sure you might what, have a couple yeah. others. Well, and, and there's a certain uh, you know, sports director at WDVE who um, he has he has a tradition you know of opening training camp with a uh, banana pepper pizza so um, you know he has to I guess prepare his stomach for the abuse it's going to take <laughs> over the ensuing days and weeks <clears throat> but he will be he will remain nameless no these are in my opinion franchise defining moments um, that happened at a specific training camp practice, trying to narrow it down as much as possible. and um, I'm sure that was tough know, for you to do. I mean, there is obviously weightier moments than others, but with a franchise as historic as this, with a location as historic as St. Vincent, I mean, there's a ton of moments you can choose from. Well, um, I don't know, for, to be honest, you're, you're correct about that, but it wasn't that difficult for okay. me to pick two because um, they, in my opinion, are – significant enough that um, really kind of changed the course of the franchise at that particular moment in time. So uh, we're going to start, uh, I'll start chronologically. Um, I'm going to take everyone back to 1969. And I, I say this with the, you know, um, typical disclaimer that while I am old, I was not <laughs> old enough to actually be present for this uh, training camp. But um, 1969, Chuck Knoll's first year, first draft pick was Joe Green, and Joe Green um, was a holdout. <laughs> he, didn't, wow. he didn't sign his rookie contract, uh, held out for more money. The way uh, that Joe Green tells the story is that um, he was in Pittsburgh at the time. He was... Uh, he showed up at the Roosevelt Hotel at the time because even um, Three River Stadium was not yet open. He's negotiating with Dan Rooney. Uh, Art Rooney Sr. Um, at one point just said to his son, give him what he wants. <laughs> and that was the end of the negotiation. Joe Green signed his contract. Uh, the chief handed him with a cigar, handed him a cigar. Joe Green said he still has that cigar, by the way. Never lit it up, never smoked it. Um and so Dan Rooney then puts him in his car and they drive up to Latrobe. The Steelers had obviously uh, be began uh, training camp. <clears throat> so Joe Green shows up. The team is on the field <clears throat> already. And he goes up and gets, you know, um, his un well, practice uniform on. And in 1969, there were no acclimation days. So the first, you know, the first practice was in pads. Joe Green's first practice was in pads. Uh, as soon as he starts walking down the hill from the, um, the locker room to the field, uh, Chuck Knoll orders a Oklahoma drill. <laughs> and um, just to give the listeners a quick 
explanation of the Oklahoma drill, which is now illegal, yes. uh, according to the collective bargaining agreement. Um, <clears throat> you put up, you put two tackling dummies uh, on the ground, lay them flat, uh, and it's about, uh, I would say, I don't know, three, four feet between them. Uh, on the one side of the tackling dummy is the defensive player. On the other side of the tackling dummy is uh, an offensive blocker, um, a quarterback, and a running back. Uh, when the whistle blows, the um, the quarterback takes the snap if they're you know because it, it's not always a center that's blocking the defensive lineman, but you need that you know snapping thing. So the the ball is snapped. The quarterback hands the ball to the running back, who has to run between the two uh, tackling dummies, and that's where all the action occurs, right there. So <clears throat> Joe Green is immediately put uh, on defense, and um, the first man in for the offense was Ray Mansfield, veteran center starter, um, and uh, you know this is Andy Russell you know, telling this story, who was a part of the defense at the time. Uh, Andy Russell is saying that uh, the the offensive players are all snickering. You know, Mansfield is going to give this rookie his lunch. And um, so Mansfield, Chuck blows the whistle. Joe Green just throws Mansfield to the side and tackles the running back. Okay, do it again. Same thing. Now, you know, Andy Russell says... The offensive linemen like start looking around at each other. <laughs> I bet. You know what do we what do we got here? And so then you know the the uh, the it goes on. <clears throat> Mansfield, Bruce Van Dyke, another veteran, longtime veteran uh, NFL player, gets thrown away by Joe Green. Larry Gagner. I mean, Joe Green's going through the entire offensive line one at a time, defeating just everybody. Next, next, <clears throat> next. Right, <laughs> making all these plays. Andy Russell, who wrote a couple of books about you know, the Steelers, his time there. He's, then he said, in addition to the offensive linemen, like looking at each other, who is this guy? He said the defensive linemen started looking at each other, thinking who's going to get cut because of this guy. <laughs> uh, and it didn't take very long for that to actually happen. You know, Joe Green, uh, during his rookie training camp, he wore number 72 because number 75 belonged to a longtime veteran defensive lineman by the name of Ken Cordes, who had started 38 games over the previous few seasons for the Steelers at defensive tackle. So Joe Green, you know, he's destroying all these people. And as so happened, uh, 1969 was uh, Ken Cordes's last season in the NFL. Or not, not last season in the NFL, last season for the Steelers. Um, and then when number 75 became available, because Ken Cordes had worn that, and the, the procedure at the time was, you know, veterans got to keep their jerseys even if number one picks came in and wanted that number. Um, so Ken Cordes gave up his number 75. That became Joe Green's number. Uh, and the rest is, as they say, history. Uh, for a lot of reasons, that very drill I believe changed the course of the Steelers in the sense that um, not only was a new sheriff in town, yeah. but um, the 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 kind of player that Chuck Knoll wanted to turn around a team that had won nothing to that point in its its its, its existence, um, not only in talent 
attitude, will to win, all of that was on display in that very first drill uh, of Joe Green's first training camp. And uh, I really think that, you know, beyond the what it meant in terms of the addition of a, you know, a great, great player, uh, it also showed everybody who was standing around watching because everybody was standing around watching. Okay, this is it now. This is this is how things are going to go from here. Uh, and when Chuck Knoll had told um, those players in his first meeting with them after he was hired, this was even before training camp, when he said, our goal is to win the Super Bowl, but most of you are not good enough to be here when that happens. So that also kind of uh, illustrated that point in pretty graphic fashion yeah. <laughs> uh, to all those players there uh, for that meeting and then there for that uh, first training camp practice. I mean, that moment that you just described, it, it seemed like it was right out of a movie. Like if Hollywood wanted to make the Joe Green story, they wouldn't have to dramatize any of what you just said as far as that first practice was concerned. It sounds like something Disney would cook up on their own. Right. And there is a famous photo, uh, Steelers photo, of Chuck Knoll uh, and Joe Green standing next to each other uh, during his rookie training camp, whether it was that first day or not, I you know I don't know for sure. Joe Green is not wearing a uniform; uh, he's wearing a t-shirt, but he has obviously just been working out. Maybe he took off, you know, the pad. Maybe it was after the first practice, whatever it was. But Joe Green is obvious, you know, he's sweating and and everything, and he's standing next to Chuck Knoll, and he has that Joe Green look on his face, and. You know, Noel has the Chuck Noel look on his face. I mean, they weren't yucking it up for the camera or anything. But, um, you know, you could tell that um, it was all business. And, uh, you know, the business that had changed uh, with his arrival. Both of them. No question about that. Before next week's episode, or before we get into the questions on next week's episode, Labs will share you another key moment from Steelers training camp before we start training camp as the players move in uh, two Wednesdays from now, July 26. But let's get to today's questions. Our first one comes from Jim Anderson from Toledo, Ohio, and he wants to know, during training camp, does the depth chart change daily or weekly, uh, and is it posted for players to see? Um, you know, Mike Tomlin is not a big fan of depth charts. Um, as, well, let me put it this way. He's not a big fan of putting a depth chart on a piece of paper. Uh, during training camp or at any really at any point, um, he does do it in, in um, conjunction with NFL rules for such things. Um, and the reason that uh, Tomlin is not a fan of depth charts on paper is that he believes that it can change daily, and it often does change daily. As I mentioned, you know there are NFL requirements for depth charts, and the Steelers always comply with those. But as for posting them for players to see, you know, um, I believe that that um, practice would maybe have some players make them complacent, guys who are at the top of the depth chart, and guys who were at the bottom of the depth chart may cause them to give up. You know, if you're, if you know, how many how many wide receivers are there? Ten, maybe, in a, right. on a training camp roster. So if there was a depth chart and you're, you know, one of those undrafted guys or a futures contract guy or something like that, and you're ninth or 10th on the depth chart, maybe you start looking at that thinking, man, they're not, they're, 
they maybe keep five or six. I'm 10th. And you kind of like check out mentally. So there's none of that uh, with the Steelers under Tomlin. I mean, the competition during training camp is presented to the players as a marathon. And the race isn't over or, you know, in terms of winning it or losing it until the finish line is crossed. And that won't come until, you know, through the um, uh, three, I almost said four preseason games, through the three preseason games. Well, that shows you how old I am. I already mentioned that. Um, Let's not speak extra work into existence for us. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, we don't want extra preseason games. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, you know, until that's over, and especially now, you know, there's only one roster cut. So why would you want to either inject false hope into some people or dash their hope in some people by putting up something that by the time the ink dries on the printer paper, uh, it might already be obsolete? Kent Herbst from Lake St. Louis, Missouri asks, with J.J. Watt and T.J. Watt both having great careers, with T.J.'s career still in progress, that might put them on a path to enshrinement in Canton. Are there any brothers enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? There are not. Not as yet, anyway. Um, You know, there are um, a few examples of fathers and sons. uh, The Maras, Art Rooney Sr. and Dan Rooney, uh, as as examples uh, of um, fathers and sons in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But there are currently no sets of brothers. Now... You know, some fans may disagree with this. Uh, I think that there's a good chance that the first brothers to go in will be the Mannings. Yeah, I think Eli's going to get in, um, too. I do, too. Um, you know, and whether, um, you know, and I don't know <clears throat> of another potential, you know, on the on-deck circle, so to speak, uh, brother tandem to go uh, to ha- to have the possibility of being enshrined. But it seems to me that the first set of brothers will be the Mannings yeah, whenever I, that happens. It, it actually might not be far-fetched. I know we're still a ways away with TJ's career, but that the Watts might be the one on deck just because there's not many other options out there. Um, Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not going to argue. Cause because JJ's getting start, in, right? I mean, we agree with that. I, I really don't believe that there's much chance that he <laughs> right. will not. You know, again, with him, it's a question of when, not if. Right. And, you know... Trying to predict the when, you know, with this, it's just difficult for me. I mean, um, I would think that, you know, J.J. Watt would be a, you know, I don't want to say first ballot, ballot lock, but, I mean, he, I think that he has enough credentials um, to, to get in, you know, very soon after he is eligible. Uh, but a lot of it sometimes has to do with other guys in the, in the class, other guys who are eligible at the time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, man, you could be right that, um, JJ and TJ may be the, in the on deck circle in the, you know, brother category and who knows? I mean, I don't know, you know, probably how long TJ's career is going to last. Uh, does Eli, uh, is there a lot of anti Eli bias? Uh, you know, I don't know. You hear a lot of things, but you could be right about that. It could be the Mannings and then the Watts. Philip Scarcella from Stephen City, Virginia. In your opinion, is the secondary better than last year going into training camp? Um, you know, the going into training camp uh, category doesn't mean a whole lot. I mean, not to me anyway, uh, because 
looking back on 2022, um, you know, the team's issues at cornerback really didn't reveal themselves to me, at least until the regular season started. You know, when you're looking at the 2022 training camp depth charted cornerback, you had Cam Sutton, Levi Wallace, Akella Witherspoon, and Arthur Millette, among some others. Okay. And it wasn't really until the team got into the heart of their regular season that it became apparent that the position of cornerback was hardly a strength. Okay. So you're looking at cornerback now. Um, the Steelers have added Patrick Peterson, Joey Porter Jr., Corey Trice Jr. as their main additions. And then Cam Sutton, Akella Witherspoon, and Arthur, Arthur Millette are no longer with the team. So Labeling one configuration at cornerback better or worse than the other would just be speculating at this point, um, because we, you know, they haven't even put on pads yet, or we haven't seen how they're going to be deployed, utilized. Uh, so, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what I think at this point, I, really. And and having an opinion now, um, you know, is 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 a guess. But what I'm comfortable in saying is the Steelers were not good enough at cornerback in 2022, and they took steps during this uh, offseason to make some changes in an attempt to rectify that. So that's a plus. Um, and then there's also the plus uh, who is not a cornerback, and that is someone named Minka Fitzpatrick. Uh, in my opinion, the best free safety in football. There is no, he, you know, he's signed to a long-term contract, so there's no uh, unknown uh, qualities there. Um, so, you know, he's 26 going on 27. He's a three-time first-team All-Pro. He's in his prime as a player. I'm referring to Minka Fitzpatrick. And, you know, I, can, I would imagine that he should be a better version of himself in 2023. And if he is, then I think that, you know, that trickles down to the rest of the defensive backfield uh, which would be certainly include the cornerbacks. So um, the secondary certainly has been set up to be better. Uh, whether it actually you know manifests itself or comes to fruition, we'll have to see when the pads go on. John Knox from Nashville, Tennessee. Do you think having Super Bowl rings adds to the weight of a person's candidacy for the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Lynn Swan didn't have great numbers, but made a lot of highlight reel catches and had four rings. Louis Lips had slightly better numbers, but no rings. Yeah, there's no question in my mind that um, um, Super Bowl championships, and board, the people on the board of selectors have told me this, that championships, Super Bowl rings, uh, weigh in the consideration uh, when um, – People are discussed in the room um, to be elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So, okay, using the example, John's example specifically, Lynn Swan, four Super Bowl rings and also was the MVP of Super Bowl X. So, um, I remember with the year that Swan ended up finally getting elected, uh, Ed Bouchette, who was the representative. Pittsburgh representative at the time who was pleading his case uh, for Swan, pleading Swan's case, the thing that he said was, Bouchette's point to them was, if all we're going to talk about are Swan's numbers, 
then let's not have this anymore. Let's just establish numbers, and then if they don't exceed these numbers, they don't get in, and if they do exceed the numbers, let's put them in. Because if that's if it's numbers are the thing, then it should be just about the numbers, and let's not go through this 10-hour you know, debate about all these guys. And that got through to enough people that it... Um, you know, uh, flipped the scales a little bit, and Swan got in. So, yes, um, championships and Super Bowl rings do impact someone's uh, ability to get elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Glenn Passavant from Tecumseh, Michigan, asks a football rules question. What is the difference between a forward lateral and a shuttle pass? My understanding is that a shuttle pass is allowed, but a forward lateral is not. Okay, first of all, uh, the correct term is shovel pass, you know, like you use when you dig a hole. Because <laughs> that's, like that's kind of the way. Mind-boggling versus mind-boggling there, that confusion. <laughs> right. Uh, or mind-bobbling. <laughs> um, uh, so, okay, so a shovel pass, and my understanding is that that's uh, what it's called because it's somewhat similar to the way the ball is delivered, you know, the shoveling motion and usually it's a kind of an underhanded flip of the football and uh the diff the, the other primary difference is you know a shovel pass is delivered from behind the line of scrimmage the quarterback takes the snap either under center or in the shotgun and he shovels the ball forward to the eligible receiver running back, tight end, wide receiver, whatever it might be. And all of that happens behind the line of scrimmage. A forward lateral, once the person holding the ball crosses the line of scrimmage, if you uh, throw it forward, flip it forward, any of that, that's a forward lateral, and uh, that is not legal. And our final question today comes from Scott Randall from Conway, South Carolina. After the draft and on paper, it seems as though the Steelers added some amazing draft choices. But has the team done anything to upgrade our punter? (laughs) (laughs) The Um, important question at the end. Good job, Labs. Good organization. (laughs) Um, Well, let me just say this to Scott. Uh, Fans' uh, impression of Presley Harvin III is not the same as the Steelers' coaches' um, evaluation of him. You know, a lot of fans uh, will criticize Harvin or, uh, you know, uh, downgrade him in their own minds because of what they perceive, you know, to be inconsistent performance or, you know, he doesn't kick the ball far enough or whatever. But what the Steelers want from their punter primarily is directional kicking. And directional kicking is important because that's how the coverage is set up. So if, you know, in, in the, the, the fineness, the accuracy that they uh, want with this is so specific. You know, they may tell Presley Harvin, we want the ball from the numbers to the sideline. I mean, it's not just kick it to the right of the center of the field. I mean, they want it in a specific place because that's where the um, coverage assumes the ball is going to go, and that's where the coverage flows. Uh, and to show how good he at this, how good he is at this, 
Last season, the Steelers punt team ranked second in the NFL by only allowing 24 punts to be returned for an average of 5.7 yards per return. That's second in the NFL. The Los Angeles Chargers, just to give you a comparison, they led the NFL in that category by allowing only 19 punts to be returned for an average of 3-point yards per return. So, you know, the Steelers were second in the NFL in a category that the coaching staff perceives to be probably the most significant punting statistic that there is. They want the, where they want the kicks to go, and the um, the uh, ability of the return team to put their its offense in a good starting field position and put the Steelers' defense, you know, uh, by extension, in a bad starting field position. Okay, now Presley Harvin this summer is going to have to beat back the competition, and this year it's not just a camp leg. I mean, Braden Man is a guy who the Steelers claimed off waivers. He is a legitimate NFL punter. So uh, it's not uh, something that's rubber stamped like a lot of these specialist training camp battles can end up being. But, um, you know, Harvin is, he's not on his, he doesn't have one foot out the door. I'm just telling you. Uh, the, the team thinks way too highly of him. And here's another thing. People laugh or make fun of me for this. Presley Harvin is a really good holder. And, um, you know, last year in that game against the Ravens, uh, I believe the, uh, the game towards the end of the season in Baltimore, um, there were some adverse weather conditions going on there. And Presley Harvin did a really nice job on the last, the game, what turned out to be the game-winning field goal, getting the snap, getting it down for Boswell to kick the game-winning field goal. And do not, do not underestimate that contribution to the team. Um, I'm not saying that Boswell's going to, uh, you know, start kicking and screaming if Presley Harvin's uh, roster spot uh, turns up to be in danger or, you know, ends up being in danger. But they don't cut that guy without considering the impact on the place kicker. Uh, because they are a tandem, snapper, holder, place kicker, or not a tandem. <laughs> That's tandem is two. Uh, they're a, a triumvirate uh, that has to work consistently together and seamlessly together. So uh, I don't believe that Harvin's job is in danger, uh, especially if he just continues doing what he has been doing lately. Here's a quick question to wrap up for you for me. Which position do you think most of the civilians think is the easiest to just plug and play anybody at, holder or long snapper? Because it's either one of those two. They think anybody can just do that. Yeah, well, um, that's – I would probably say long snapper because the uh, assumption is that if you can snap the ball into the, in the shotgun formation, why can't you long snap? <laughs> that's a very good and, answer. And um, I saw Mike Webster do that poorly a lot <laughs> towards the end of his career. And Mike Webster is a great, great player center. But that, that, that didn't make him necessarily great at that. 
We will be back again next week. Get your questions into labs right now. Maybe you will hear them on that episode. And then it will be training camp. It is right around the corner, and we couldn't be more excited for that. For Bob Labriola, I'm Tom Offerman, and we always appreciate you guys listening to Asked and Answered.